Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by Propeller, the PR content and events company. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Uh, coming up this week, we've got an interview with Katie Vanek-Smith, who is the publisher of the slow news venture Tortoise Media. We've also got a couple of on-the-road interviews, which we took place at the AOP event. Uh, one's with Matthew Garahan, the global media editor of the FT, and also with David Billings from Accenture. Now, thanks for joining me, Matthew. You're hosting the AOP Summit. Um, before we talk a bit about that, um, I did notice that you've been, um, or the FT and you personally, have been shortlisted for a number of journalism awards. One of them, I think, is the, the piece you did on Martin Sorrell. Can you just give us a bit more detail about the, the piece and which awards you've actually been nominated for? Yeah, so uh, we were nominated for a piece on uh, a, a big investigation that we did on uh, the circumstances around uh, Martin Sorrell's departure from WPP earlier this year. Uh, to it was a lot of several weeks of work. Um, spoke to dozens of, of, of sources to build a sort of picture about, uh, you know, the, the, about the, the months and the, the moments leading up to his departure, which was obviously quite uh, surprising. I think shocking for the for the, the broader marketing industry. Um, and we've had several other nominations. Uh, the FT was nominated for its coverage of the President's Club and the sort of undercover expose about uh, what happened there. Um, and other things too. So it's been quite yeah, it's a strong year for sort of FT journalism. Okay. And in terms of Martin Sorrell now, he's obviously moved on to S4 Capital, but there's still an awful lot written about him. What does that say compared to WPP? I mean, does that kind of say that Martin Sorrell was bigger than WPP? He's such a big character that you know journalists still seem to be obsessed with him, even though he's a, a smaller vehicle now. Well, I think Martin is a is one of the the, you know, the greatest. CEOs this country's ever produced. You know, he, he and I think that's why there's fascination in, uh, with him. I mean, to, you know, to remember, look back at the story over 30 years. He, he turned a sort of shell into the most powerful force in advertising. He's a dynamo. Uh, you know, he did bold deals, bold acquisitions, uh, brought companies together, really sort of changed the, the fabric of the ad industry. Um, and WPP was a very British success story. And I think that's why there's interest in him and, his, and in his career. Um, and there's a lot of interest in, in, in S4 and how that does and whether he can pull off the same, the same thing twice. Yeah, okay. And in terms of Mark Reed, he's obviously taken over. Big shoes to fill. Yeah. Uh, he made an announcement, is they're going to sell a percentage stake in Canter. Have you been impressed about what you've seen so far of him or is it too early to say? I think Mark's, Mark's a very... Uh, yeah, I, am, I have been impressed. I think he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. I think he's got a difficult job because... Um, the, the, the industry is facing a lot of pressure from a lot of different angles, um, from big tech platforms, the rise of the big consultancies, uh, you know, pressure on, uh, on from, from clients who have activist investors to cut their spending, all this transparency and uh, uh, viewability and other questions um, that, that are in the supply chain that, that clients are, are interested in. So he, you know, he takes the chair from, 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 a, from a legend of the industry in a very, a very tricky time. Um, but I think, from what I hear, the, sh the shareholders, um, and the sh by the way, the shares have, uh, took a bit of a hit the other day, um, where their, their numbers were um, uh, slightly worse than expected. But shareholders generally, I think, have been very impressed with him. Um, he's obviously a diff you know, different character, has a different style to Martin Sorrell. Um, but I think he's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's too early to judge his tenure, but I think the, the indicators so far are that he's, he's doing all the right things. And obviously, you've got you're a global uh, media editor. Yeah. But how much of your time is spent writing about domestic issues in terms of 
the media, I mean, who are you writing about? Are you writing about Channel 4, the big broadcasters? Yeah. Or are you writing about Google and Facebook in the UK? I mean, who, who are you focusing on at the moment? It's, it's a real mix. I mean, it, I, I moved back from the States about a year ago, uh, quite fortunately or fortuitously, because it, it coincided with the, the, all the bid interest in Sky. I mean, that was a you know, UK company. Um, so I was here in London writing about Sky and big companies in the US that I know very well, Comcast, Walt Disney, were all were sort of fighting each other to buy it. So that was a global media story with a really big UK component. So it made a lot of sense to be here and, and that worked out very well. But I think, you know, more broadly, the sort of the, the themes in the, the media industry, you know, tech disruption, uh, you know, challenges to advertising, um, the, uh, you know, the, the rise of streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, it was a global stories. I mean, they're, they're U.S. companies, but they're global stories, and they resonate here as much as they do in the U.S. and, and, and elsewhere. Um, I think, that, you know, the, the, the companies are in the U.S., but the themes are global. And I think being here, um, you know, Channel Four is a, is a U.K. story, but it's one that's very important given its sort of success and its uh, prominence in the, the U.K. market. So it's been a good, it's been a, it's been a good move, and, I, yeah, I, and, I'm, and I'm really enjoying it. Okay. And, and last couple of questions on the on the budget. The Chancellor introduces tech tax. Um, various reports I've read about that. Will will the likes of Google and Facebook, who I guess this will impact, will they be overly worried or concerned about this? this I think the threshold is something like 400, 500 million, which is probably comparatively peanuts to them. Yeah, it's a drop in the bucket for them. I mean, I, I know that there was, um, I think, criticism that, that, that it could have gone further. I, I think it's a first step. This had to be, you know, this is sort of overdue. And I think a lot of um, media companies will, will be heartened that, that they took this step. Uh, in terms of what it does to the sort of UK finances, I think, it, you know, 400 million pounds as a proportion of uh, revenues from Google and Facebook and, and others is, is not a huge amount of money. Um, but uh, yeah, every little helps, but I guess it's too early to tell. When you touched on Sky there, uh, Rupert Murdoch's obviously been a massive uh, figure for the media industry for some years now, but obviously he's got a, a diminished empire now, he's still got his newspapers. Do you think his sort of career's winding to, a, to an end now, or are we going to see uh, more acquisitions from, from, from News Corp? Or? Well, I mean, he's 87, right? So, it's, so you know, I don't know I'll be doing 87, or you'll be doing 87. I don't know if I'll be doing... But, you know, he sold at the top of the market. I mean, you've got, whatever you think about Rupert Murdoch, he timed that sale, uh, the breakup of his empire, to, to perfection, right? And I think he's gone with the times. I mean, he's, he's, he's live sport, live news. I think he's realised media companies have a struggle to compete with Netflix and others in pure entertainment. But live, they have an immediate advantage. And his new Fox uh, empire... In the US, Fox News will have the Fox Broadcast Network, lots of sports rights, and they've got a lot of uh, cash, and I expect them to make some acquisitions there. I mean, it's, there's more pressure on news, the news core side of the business, on the, the print assets. Um, but no, you think about Rupert Murdoch, you never count him out. So I, I think uh, plenty, of, plenty of time left for him to do other things and surprise us all again. Thanks very much for uh, joining me, David. So you're uh, heading up the programmatic unit at Accenture. Yes, that's right. So I've been at Accenture for around three years. Prior to that, I worked for a couple of holding companies and also on the ad tech side. And now we're running, obviously, that programmatic services team. Okay, so you're on a, um, a panel about the future of uh, media buying. Uh, what was the big takeaway then? I mean, you talked about some, some of the various different models. I mean, how do you see the future? I think the big takeaway is that everyone feels like the industry is still in a massive state of transformation and sure. everyone has different commercial pressures at play. So I primarily work with advertisers. Uh, it's been interesting for me to get an insight into the pressures that uh, the publishing world is under. You know, we see exactly the same thing with retailers who sit at the opposite end of the value chain. I think there is a real desire to collaborate. 
Um, I think you know there are a couple of looming kind of big threats that everyone sees. Everyone's mm-hmm. concerned about the impact of Amazon. Sure. Um, but I think. Amongst others, there's a real desire to collaborate to work out innovative ways to compete with that because it is a completely different type of competition and people are going to have to think of new ways to stay relevant if they're going to remain competitive. There's been a lot of talk about in-housing too, but I mean, obviously advertisers do want to take more control of their advertising budget, but you don't see in-housing, I mean, it's a trend, isn't it? But you don't see it becoming more more of a significant trend then? I think it will become more of a significant trend. I think in-housing is often seen as a binary thing. So either you take everything in-house or you leave it completely outsourced. What we're increasingly seeing is advertisers appreciate more of the nuance in that spectrum. So taking things in-house could involve taking control of your data, taking control of your advertising technology. It doesn't necessarily mean taking end-to-end services in-house. I think for most advertisers, the right thing to do isn't to take absolutely everything in-house, but I absolutely do think that almost every advertiser would benefit from taking more control over their digital advertising, and that often means building their own capability, taking control of some of the technology and data that sits underneath their ad tech stack, and having more understanding about what goes on beneath it. So when you launched the programmatic unit, that was it was got quite a lot of traction, the launch of it. Quite controversial, because obviously the argument is that you're moving into programmatic, uh, but you're also an auditor and run pitches too. I mean, what's the response from uh, Accenture about that? So the Accenture's released a statement on that to the market, and they are absolutely focuses on the fact that we have very strict uh, sure. data protection in China's walls that sit across our business. It's not something I'm here to talk about in detail today. I do think there is a lot of concern about conflict of interest in the industry more sure. generally, um, and I think a lot needs to be done to help reassure people that that trust uh, that, that you know our clients and the consumers need to place in the advertising industry is justified. Okay, and the last couple of questions: Have you what business have you? Can you tell us any details of any clients that you've won since you've launched this year? Yeah, sure. So, um, interestingly, the nature of our business is that we have uh, master services agreements with a lot of clients that actually prevent us from talking as openly as we'd like to. There have been a couple of well-publicized wins that we've had, and the most recent was uh, Radisson Hotel Group, yep. where we are running not only their media buying services, but their end-to-end, what we call experience, um, and that involves creative services, also managing um, the conversion journey on their website, as well as the media. And that's absolutely the angle that Accenture Interactive is pushing, is that digital media and programmatic is a very important part of delivering a compelling consumer experience but there are a lot of other components that need to come together in order to deliver a persuasive um, and and compelling experience and that's absolutely what we're driving for. Okay and finally there's obviously been uh, it's well documented lots written about uh, consultancies uh, sort of parking their tanks on the lawns of of media agencies and advertising agency but there seems to be a trend now where media agencies are kind of moving back into consultancies launching consultancies and doing a lot of consultancy work does that represent a big challenge for the likes of Accenture? No, I don't think so. For, it, it is interesting to see the way that the industry has responded to new demands, um, both from our collective clients and also from consumers, and also from new competitive pressures. I mentioned Amazon, but obviously, I think yep. um, consultancies are seen by some as a new competitive threat or when, threat when it comes to uh, marketing services type industry. I think we're seeing a convergence. You know, if you rewind five years ago and take a snapshot then and then take a look at today, you would see that actually agencies and consultancies are starting to converge um, and they're starting to run services that are more similar to each other. Um, I don't think agencies are going to go away anytime soon, but I'd like to think that the new approach that consultancies are bringing is starting to challenge the industry in a constructive way and bringing a better service for everyone. Hello. Before the show resumes, a quick word from Propeller, sponsor of the Media Marketing Podcast. Propeller provides PR content and events programs for companies operating in the media, marketing, advertising and technology sectors. In this part of the show, we speak to an industry leader to find out who or what has influenced their own career. 
and we also find out what advice they would give their younger self. My name is Dino Myers Lamberty. I am manager director of Mullineau Media Hub. So Media Hub is the media tentacle within a full service agency. So we plan and buy and do the strategy for a lot of different pieces of business, ranging across a wide range of of industries. My business inspiration is the easy answer would have to be Jeff Bezos, but uh, I, I, I prefer to choose someone within the media industry. And uh, I had a bit of a think about this, um, and it's actually, there's no single person that I could really just call out as being key inspiration. But I think it's always great to take the best bits from a few different people that you've worked with and leave, leave any of the flaws on the floor, literally. But um, I think for different reasons, I think that um, Jenny Biggin at the Seven Stars has to be noted as a business inspiration because of um, her passion in, in what she's done and continuing to you know, create something that challenges a lot of the, the big players in the industry at a time when it seemed like it was very difficult to be that independent agency. But, but also uh, Jonathan Durden, who was one of the founders of the PhD, so the dean of the PhD, largely because of what, kind of like what he created, but also what he inspired at the time which went on to inspire people like uh, Jonathan Wilkins and Naked, who I'd also probably say is a bit of inspiration. In terms of what both of them actually have gone on to do after their times, at the things that made them probably most famous, um, but to continue to um, create other businesses, but also be involved in industry and live like kind of well-balanced lives where they're doing things that genuinely interest them and hoping to carry on and create more interesting things for the industry. The advice that I'd give my younger self would be that Remember that it's a people business. You know, be amazing at the people side, genuinely care and master it. Uh, and while the future might be run by machines, it will always be outsmarted by people. I'd like to give a shout out to my mum because uh, despite not really knowing and understanding what I do, she's probably my biggest world inspiration and mums need to be loved. I listen to the Media Marketing Podcast because ever since it's come on my radar, um, they've had fantastic people being interviewed who are really saying some insightful things about our industry as well. And there's not a lot of podcasts that go in this much depth into our industry. I think our industry is relatively young and it's great when you can get people who are at the top of their game speaking elo eloquently about problems that we have, challenges and how they've overcome them, but also giving a bit of inspiration as to what they think the future holds and how uh, we might overcome some of the barriers. If you want to discuss how Propeller can help you find the story at the heart of your business and amplify it to drive growth, then get in touch at info at Now, back to the regular media and marketing podcast. Now, thanks a million for joining me, Katie. You're very welcome. So first up, what's the sell? Can you tell us about Tortoise or why should people be interested in the venture? Well, firstly, thank you, John, for having me. Um, I would say... Um, our mantra is really the best way to sum up Tortoise. So our motto is to slow down, wise up. Um, and um, Tortoise is there to provide a alternative to what we see as the accelerated news of um, the accelerated age and the accelerated um, pace of news. And we filmed that in many cases, news has become noise. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Tortoise is there to provide an alternative. So a slower, more thoughtful um, approach, a slow news feed, if you like. Yeah. And um, it comes also with a promise of opening up journalism, giving um, our members a seat at the table. So a slower, more thoughtful approach, but an open approach, which uh, 
enables us to hear from our members and have them as part of the newsroom. And when are you launching next year, are you? Spring next year, yes. Okay, so we'll dig deeper into all the, the detail, the business model and all about this, this different kind of journalism late, uh, later. Um, my first thought when I, when I heard about Tortoise was uh, you've obviously had a, a long uh, career in newspapers. You worked at The Times, Telegraph, Dow Jones in the US, publisher of the Wall Street Journals. And you, uh, as much as anyone will know, the news market is, is saturated. Uh, I guess likewise with your co-founder, James Harding. Now, admittedly, Tortoise is a bit different, uh, but I mean, this is about slow news, but it's still news. Did you ever consider doing something completely different? Did you, say to ever, did you ever say to yourself, that's it, I'm done with news, perhaps it's you know, time to try something else? Um, I think I have ink in my veins. So um, on a personal level, no. Um, Journalism uh, is important. And, um, you know, news not only reflects our reality, it shapes it. So to be part of that, I think, is a very important um, mission for both journalists and people that work in journalism. And um, you can never have too much competition, John. Right. Okay. Fair enough. And you 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 took this job because latterly you were at Dow Jones in the US. Was that a difficult decision to make? Was it like a, a Mark Zuckerberg scenario when he was trying to convince Nick Clegg to take up a role on Facebook, or were you um, were you easily persuaded that this was the right job for you? <laughs> um, no, it was a really difficult decision to leave News Corp. Apart from my little stint at the Telegraph that you mentioned, I had been at News Corp for over twenty years. So. Um, uh, I had a brilliant career at News Corps and it was a fabulous place to work. But sometimes uh, things come along and they're once in a lifetime opportunities and moments, and um, you have to jump on that bus when you see it. Okay. So, I mean, it's a big decision, though. Was your intention ever to, your intention was always to move back to the, the UK at some point, was it, or not? Or? I go where the opportunities are. I mean, um, I love the UK, I loved my time in the States, um, but. Um, it was the, the law of the tortoise uh, rather than uh, a desire to, uh, uh, to, to uh, leave news. But, um, you know, it, it, it is the lure of the new. OK, right. OK, so we'll talk about business model, which has obviously been published uh, is your brief. But just a bit about the, the journalism. Um, obviously, uh, I think we can all agree there's too much news uh, and there's a bit of an information overload out there. You've got, got rolling news channels, Twitter, newspaper, hourly radio bulletins. So in short, Tortoise is, is pulling back against this maelstrom of news and saying there is a different way. And effectively, you're offering three basic products, are they? Yes. So so the first thing to say is that um, our journalism is um, supported by a membership model. And I know we'll talk more about the business model later. But I think it matters to say in the context of uh, membership, you know, that that is an important part of the three things we offer because we see members as being part of the newsroom. And so there are three, three things that we offer. Yeah. Uh, the first is um, in our mission to open up journalism. Sure. Um, we have um, uh, reimagined the traditional news or leaders conference, you yeah. know, the clever people uh, getting to a point of view on the issues of our day and times. And uh, we've called it a thinking. Yeah. And uh, the thinking is our open conference which our members and partners um, will also have a seat at the table but it is how we host our daily editorial conference but we have our members in the room the second thing that uh, we offer is then our daily um, digital edition Um, we call it the slow news feed so um, it'll be published once a day Mm -hmm. it'll be five seven thoughtful pieces of journalism um, and 
that's it. Once a day, no updates. And then uh, once a quarter, mm-hmm. um, you know, if daily will be in your inbox, once a quarter will be will be coming through the old fashioned mailbox, right. and we'll be providing people with a with Tortoise Quarterly, which is a book, a small book of big reads. So the stories that perhaps you always wondered, oh, what happened next, or you know, we never really felt like there was a conclusion on it. Um, yeah. We'll come back to those, and we will package them up in a quarterly book. Okay, so, I mean, what struck me, I looked at the website, the business proposition, there is an awful lot of detail, it seems very well thought out, but that said, do you accept it's, it's kind of evolutionary, not revolutionary, I mean, a lot of these is interesting, but yeah, publications are doing slow news, aren't they, I mean, the Times, for instance, as you'll know, does daily editions at the moment, the Guardian does long reads, doesn't it, does the Economist and the, the Week, uh, but, but I think you're sort of um, selling this as a, as a cross between the Economist and a, a, a TED Talk, is that right, or... Yeah, so let's take the um, the first bit of that question, which is, uh, are others doing something similar? Sure. And I think um, there are great examples of open journalism. There are great examples of slow news. But I think that they are not the core product for many of the other publications that you mentioned. They are things that are part of mm-hmm. the maelstrom of 400 articles a day. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Yes, they exist, but they are not sort of the core offering. They're sort of part of. So I think we are different in that way. Um, and your second question was, remind me. Um, uh, well, I, I just compared it. So I, m- I mentioned that there was oh, the people like yes. the Times and the Guardian. And the, sorry, and you said it was a mix between the, 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 the uh, TED Talk and the Economist. Well, the love child. Of. Oh, the love child. Um, sorry, yeah. So um, yes, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, um, TED took something that uh, you could say was become traditional or stayed or even slightly dull and reimagined it as in the university lecture and took it and created a new format um, and made it accessible again. And The Economist is a brilliant um, newspaper, weekly newspaper, that uh, is very thoughtful, is opinion Mm. analysis and investigations, but you know it does come from a specific worldview of free markets and 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 you know that economic worldview, and it is it fits perfectly into a transatlantic flight, but maybe not my busy working week. So um, I think the time piece around the Economist is something we're rethinking, but also the worldview. Okay, uh, so and Tortoise has got no particular uh, particular uh, political leaning whatsoever. You're not going to take a viewpoint on that. Apolitical. Right. So, and um, that's, you know, our, our independence really matters yes. to us. And in terms of these news conferences, these are going up and down the, you're taking this on the road then, basically. Anyone can, can join, can they, online, or they have to come in physically? Or So, um, great question. So, um, we have our home, our tortoise headquarters, right. and we will host Thinkins daily, Monday to Thursday, in our home. Uh, we are also committed to taking tortoise out on tour at least once a fortnight mm-hmm. to um, other places and rooms um, across the UK and also the US where we have um, seen um, significant interest as well on Kickstarter. And we're just about to announce actually that um, uh, for every city or town that gets to more than 100 members um, mm-hmm. on Kickstarter, we'll schedule them as a place that we go on tour in our first um, tortoise okay. on tour yeah. so um, yeah so Edinburgh I think Edinburgh Southampton Sheffield Cambridge Oxford New York Monte LA Carlo. and I'm hoping Monte Carlo yes John that would be very nice uh, if uh, 
if uh, Paris is actually quite high up there. So um, all those cities that get to more than 100 backers will guarantee that we'll go there on tour. Uh, but presumably you, this will be the editorial, you won't be too involved in the um, conference meetings, will you? Or will you, will you go to these? Or? Um, they're open, they're open to members. Um, and um, I have been at uh, many of our trial thinkings and I will continue to be. I'm, you'll be glad to know I probably won't be hosting them. Well, I can know about that. I'm sure you'd be a very good host. I mean, is there an element, obviously you've worked for a number of newspapers. When you're working for big organisations like News Corp, uh, The Telegraph, when you're working there, do you always think, are you always thinking about the future and things that you'd like to do if you set up your own venture, thinking, you know, I could perhaps do this better? I mean, there's, there's examples, aren't there, of journalists um, who've worked for high-profile national newspapers who've tried to, who have launched their own ventures. I know Tim Montgomery, the Conservative commentator, has got unheard. Uh, I think Ian Martin, the, the columnist of the Times, has got his own thing. So there are a few examples. I just wonder, if you, when you're working for a, a big company, are you always thinking about what it, you know, how I could do it better if I had a more slim land, you know, logistically how we, we could do things better, maybe? Um, short answer, no. But I right. think longer answer would be I think the the, the names you mentioned they're all journalists yes. which is exciting because I think if you look at what technology has enabled um, yeah. you know we had a era of citizen journalism and what I think is really interesting now is that actually lots of journalists themselves are believing and seeing um, sort of a need for a different type of journalism and the tools available now from the sort of technology that's available to us has meant that many journalists are are stepping out and I think that's brilliant because that can only create for better journalism um, overall. Um, On a personal note and from my perspective um, no, uh, it isn't about, it wasn't about leaving News Corps um, or going and doing a startup, it was much more about um, whatever job you're doing you're wanting to reimagine and kind of build for, for something new it just so happens in the last 20 years I've been fixing problems and uh, reimagining business models in legacy and heritage businesses and I can tell you it's actually quite nice to have no legacy so for the first time I'm imagining with James what the art of the possible possible could be and can be but without having to break all of the systems and uh, and legacy technology that's in place and that's quite nice. Okay so l- let's talk about the business model I mean how many in terms of uh, staff at the moment how many staff have you got and how many do you hope to have in the next six months and it's it's it, subscribe I mean it's it's, it's a membership uh, business model isn't it uh, I mean what's the cost is it I think I looked at some figures it's uh, one pound a day is it for full members but you seem to be quite flexible for younger people and students is that right I mean what would be the cost for a year too Oh, lots of questions lots in that one question. So let's start with um, the first one, which is um, we're a membership model. Yeah. Uh, are, and the business model underpinning that is a approach to having a lower and more flexible cost base. So journalistically, much more like an editorial op-ed model. So where you have... Um, so today we're uh, just shy of 30 people. Mm-hmm. By the end of next year, we'll probably be sort of 55, 60 people. And we can't imagine really getting any more than 70 um, in our sort of immediate future. But we will work with and commission um, other contributing sure. editors. And, and, and so that's the sort of fixed cost, low base, um, a low fixed cost base and flexible. 
Um, in terms of the membership model and pricing, um, yes, you're right, individual members, we're saying a pound a day, so that's £250 a year because we're published for 50 weeks of the year. So again, the lovely thing about doing your own business, we get to decide that Christmas really is a holiday and we never have to do a Christmas rotor ever again. Um, and because we're in slow news, it doesn't matter if we're not... Uh, in the break, we're not in the breaking news sure. business, so you know we can take two weeks holiday. Lovely. Um, so fifty weeks, um, pound a day, two hundred and fifty pounds a year. But yes, we've taken uh, the business decision to mm. do um, to offer one pound a week pricing mm. to under thirties and mm. groups of ten or more. So anyone of any age can get one pound a week pricing, but if they're in a group of ten. Or uh, if they're under 30, they get access to a pound a week. So it's £50 a year in the in the um, future world for under 30s and groups. Mm. £250 a year sounds, uh, it sounds quite expensive. I don't know because I don't subscribe to any papers at the moment. I don't know how that compares. Uh, Half the price of the other media. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my our hope is that obviously we're a membership model, so the more members, the better the business. So we would encourage everybody to, uh, where possible, join us a group. Um, mm. And the thing that's been interesting in Kickstarter is that mm. obviously we've dipped our toe in the water or stuck our necks out, as we sure. tortoises like to say. And, um, you know, we've offered quite big discounts on those on those prices. So for the under 30s, they can join from just £10. And for um, for people um, in groups, um, they get a three-year deal for the price of one. And for individuals, they can get five years for the price of one. So there's lots of great discounts at the moment. But the really encouraging thing that we've seen is that 40% of the audience who've joined on Kickstarter are under 30. Okay. So, so how many members have you got so far? Um, we've had over, over 1,500 pledges, 1,500 pledges. Within that, there's some groups. So we're heading up to um, near enough 1,600 uh, members. Okay. So, I mean, that, that Kickstarter thing is quite surprising because you think kids of today won't pay for media, will they, really? Well, obviously they will. If they like the idea of it. I mean, Tortoise appeals to them from a purpose perspective. Um, they, they like the idea of what we're trying to do. Uh, we've priced it um, purposefully to be attractive to um, you know people under 30 and, and used a lot of those techniques that many others do to encourage under 30s um, but yes I mean it's been very very encouraging I mean we would today already probably therefore be have the youngest paid for audience of any UK news publication. That sounds a grandiose statement. I don't, <laughs> well, I don't know. You put me on the spot. But, well, I mean, it sounds like you're going in the right direction anyway. Yeah. And it, there's no advertising. I mean, advertisers listen to this. So what's the problem with advertising? I mean, I can see pop-ups are a bit intrusive, but advertising doesn't have to be intrusive, does it? But you- no, it doesn't have to be. But actually, if you start from the premise of being a membership model, the decisions you make are driven for your members and on behalf of your members. And... Um, also, if you start from the premise that you'd like to slow down to wise up, mm. um, we've started from the view that actually we'd like to work with eight to ten similar-minded companies and brands yes. who have a mission and a, and a desire to be part of making the 21st century better and who want to, you know, beyond their business model, mm. um, serve a purpose and have a, um, in their local societies and be part of the narrative and discussion and thought leaders uh, in in the UK and, and globally to um, sort of 
be part of the conversations that help fix things. So advertising, I mean, if the members say um, that they're not, they don't mind advertising, you could perhaps do a U-turn, but there's no plans to, but you're open to the idea. If, if, if there's a, suddenly a drought of funding or something, which hopefully there won't be, but you, you've, not, you've not ruled it out you know, completely. I think I've said before that if members ask for it, then we may put advertising in. But um, right now, our plan would be to pursue the partnership approach, which means that yeah. there will be brands, there will be partners, but it won't be delivered as traditional advertising. So these partners, well, what do they get? They get to participate in the thinkings, and do they? And what type? I mean, you mentioned like-minded partners. What constitutes a like-minded part, partner then? Companies that want to be to have, to have be part of the conversation, right? To be part of, uh, to be seen as thought leaders, to um, provide service in their communities, and to um, for their brands to be able to um, be part of the conversations that matter, right? So uh, we haven't announced any of our partners. We've got a handful that are already signed, but we'll be announcing those next year. And um, they are companies that, you know, what do they get? They get to take a seat at the table, Mm -hmm. right? So um, their voice can be heard unfiltered and unedited um, live in conversations, right? Mm. So, you know, for us to provide solutions, you know, we want businesses to be at the table, right? Business has to be part of solving things mm. and actually part of changing things for the better. You know, we have to do this with business. Um, and then we sit down with the partners and we shape a solution that works for them. And for some people, it's providing membership Mm. for their clients and their customers. So actually providing tortoise memberships um, as part of of their offering out uh, alongside um, convening internal thinkings. So for some customers being able to commission, you know, a think in a quarter, which can be hosted in their environment, be it for their staff engagement or customer engagement. Um, Partners also get to help, uh, partners also get association with key case files that we're looking at. So if we're investigating, you know, the ethics of AI and Mm. we do that over a series of conversations and thinkings and a series of investigations, um, companies may want to be associated with those types of conversations. So it'd be clearly labelled kind of sponsored content, will it, in yeah, some parts? in partnership with, yeah. Okay, and these like-minded companies, I mean, hypothetically, I know you're not going to tell me names. For instance, would uh, a Google and a Facebook, who some people say should pay more tax, would they be a, a like-minded partner or not? I mean... Who says they should pay more tax? I'm joking. Um... Yes, I mean, you know, look, I think that uh, we're open to talking to all, all the companies that want to be part of this narrative. It's, it's a very specific type of company that will actually want to be part of this mm. way of doing things. I mean, look mm. at Axios in the US. They did a very similar model when they launched um, in terms of not taking advertising, but working with a handful of brands. And I think, um, you know, it, when you see it, it will be obvious as to why and who and why they're doing it. Okay, so we talked a bit about the financing. I think you've got a number of backers who, from my understanding, uh, are relatively wealthy, including the banker Bernie uh, Menzer and his wife, and the tech investor Saul Klein, and some anonymous backers. I read a piece in The Guardian, I hope I read this right, it said uh, you had a war chest of around 30 million, which, is sustained, which would sustain you for the first three years. Is that, is that about right, that figure? 
Um, I think Emily Bell did some maths when um, I said we have enough money to fund ourselves for three years. So she came up with 30 million. Uh, well, it, but it, it's not far off then, is it? It's, it's, it's nearly right, is it? Or do we know? Or? We, we, have, we, have a, we have enough money through our yeah. business plan and our investors and our backing to sustain for three years, yes. So um, you talked about the Kickstarter campaign, which has obviously done really well. I think the target was, was it 75,000? Yes. Uh, but is it not incongruous in a way? This You kind of associate Kickstarters with um, young businesses which perhaps are struggling for funding, but you're not struggling for funding, are you? Is that, how does that Kickstarter kind of sit with your, with your, with your backers? Um, not my understanding of Kickstarter. My, my understanding of Kickstarter is a community of people who want to make things happen. So I think Kickstarter is the absolute right platform to um, sort of launch a new type of newsroom on. And we purposefully set um, a target that felt ambitious, but at the same time wasn't mm. only and solely about the number, the, the, the sort of pounds raised so £75,000 we chose because if we hit that target we would have been the biggest UK journalism project ever on Kickstarter and as you say we um, we did well and, and thanks to the backers and the Kickstarter community we we smashed that in the, four, the first four hours the actual real purpose of being on Kickstarter is actually to recruit founding members yeah. so um you know, we're doing this slightly differently. We're a newsroom for our members and we want our members to be part of that newsroom. So in recruiting from the Kickstarter community, what our plan is that um, these members will help us shape the product before we launch it in April, um, in, the, in the spring of next year. So um, for a spring launch, we've still got to kind of roll out and test our product um, and our founding members will do that with us. And have you still got any big hires? You made, is it Chris Cook, the guy from Newsnight, isn't he? And there's um, an, uh, an editor from The Guardian. But have, have you got more? Well, I guess you'll have to make appointments too, won't you, and your team? I will. Um, we will be, we are still hiring, yes. And right. um, we have no other new names to announce just yet. But yes, we are hiring um, both edit in the editorial team, but also in the membership and marketing and product team. So yes, expect more on that in the uh, coming months. So people who listen to this should get their um, CVs to you then, should they? Oh, they should, yes. Right. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> uh, and just in terms of goals, I mean, do you have, um, in terms of the business plan, how many members do you hope to have by the, the end of the year? Was it, is it, is it 10,000? Is it 20,000? By the end of 2019, after uh, Well, sorry, a year after launch. A year after launch. Well, you tell me, I don't know, 100,000? I don't know. So um, we haven't released our numbers, um, but you know me very well. And you know that um, in every other, should we say, membership or subscription business, um, we've always had a big hairy goal. So we did the 100,000 on the Times in our first year when we did the paywall in 2010. And we've got the Wall Street Journal to 3 million. And uh, so there will be a good, exciting... Um, number that's higher than either of the numbers you mentioned, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I don't know what numbers I mentioned, so it's about 100 then. We're we'll, we'll just about 120,000, we can say, I think that's about fair, isn't it? <laughs> no, you it's can't like, say it's, that. It's more than that. I'm not going to tell you, John. Right, okay. Well, but it's, we'll, it's be, we'll be significant and we'll be interesting. Yeah, significantly more than significant. And in terms of who you see yourself pinching 
market share from? I mean, is that um, national newspaper readers? Is that economist readers? Or is that new readers? Well, it's, I mean, it's very early days when you look at the Kickstarter, but you pointed out that the fact that 40% of our audience have probably never paid for news before, you know, in the fact that, that 40% of the founding members are under 30 is um, an interesting sort of start point. Yeah. So I think that we are both complementary to people who are news hounds. Yeah. So if you're a news hound, and, and um, sure. I think will be a compliment to many of those. Some people may find that then we become enough as they decide to slow down and wise up. Um, but I think that you've, you've gone straight to the bullseye, which is the would-be quality audience. So the people that currently haven't found something that is there for them, mm. um, we're already seeing that they've got a huge appetite for tortoise and joining. So, um, yeah. I mean, it sounds like an interesting proposition to me, and I can see for news hounds and for people living in London, it's a quite a compelling sell. But to people, for instance, I don't know, as an example, my parents who probably consume maybe an hour's media a day and have done all their lives so they read the Daily Mail and perhaps watch two news bulletins and there's a lot of people like that in the country it's, well, I guess that's not your target market but, but I mean that's it'd be quite a tough sell to someone like that I would have thought well it's funny isn't it because I I've obviously been perfecting or not as the case may be my pitch on uh, every, anyone who'll have a cup of tea with me over the last few months which includes my mother and all of her friends um, on the south coast and um, I can tell you that um, as a community they're really interested in uh, tortoise you know they feel um, that lots of the media they, they don't feel heard by lots of the media that exists um, for them at the moment and they love the idea and the participatory model of tortoise. And um, they've got a little bit more time to recruit their nine friends to join them so they can all join for £50 a year each in the new world. And it's played as well to the retired um, communities of uh, the South Coast as it has to students okay. um, at universities. So I wouldn't rule out your mum and dad. Right, okay, I, I shall let them know. So, and just um, aside from tortoise, uh, tortoise, now that we've got you here with all your newspaper experience, obviously in the UK you've got a raft of different uh, national newspapers with varying different business models. You've got The Guardian with its membership and uh, donation model. You've got The Times um, behind the paywall. I think The Telegraph's taking more of its content behind the paywall at the moment, isn't it? Daily Mail, which is, which is free. I mean, is, I guess, what does that tell us? That there's no one-size-fits-all and all the models, or, or, or no one knows how to uh, really uh, monetize newspapers well still? So, with the exception of the FT and the Wall Street Journal, who were very early to paid-for content on right. the web, and... You know, you could say that was the great foresight of the Wall Street Journal and FT at the time, or the fact that they were owned by Pearson and Dow Jones. And the B2B business made it very clear that the B2C business couldn't give away content for free. Okay. Um, so um, we we all laboured for many years under the, under the sort of falsehood that mm. people would only pay for business content. Yeah. People will pay for things they value. Mm. They always have, they always will. And um, I think you've seen in the last two years a significant uplift in the flight quality. 
So whether it's here in the UK with The Guardian, The Telegraph moving more towards paid, The Times obviously benefiting from the fact it was very early back in 2010, um, or if it's in the US with The New York Times, The Washington Post, you know, The Journal, The Atlantic, mm-hmm. you know, they've all, they're all at historic numbers. Right. And um, many of them through paid for uh, digital subscriptions are at their highest subscriber numbers ever. I think the challenge is how do you make popular pay? Mm. And so we're just coming out of the 20 years of believing that, you know, the more scale we had, the more money we could make because we we believe the advertising model would fund the journalism. You know, Mm -hmm. that was the first 20 years of journalism in the UK. And it created a a slightly odd set of behaviours, you know, whole mini industries um, set up around search engine optimization, clickbait headlines, writing headlines to get Mm -hmm. the search, you know. and, Mm -hmm. And, you know, meanwhile, here come Facebook and Google and actually they're a better scale advertising play than quality news or tabloid news or popular news can be in any way so I think the question you're asking is if you're a quality publication I think a form of subscription model or a form of membership is is now sort of I think becoming the perceived business model perceived wisdom around the business model I think the challenge and still the question to be answered is what's the model for the populars yeah, so you don't have a, you don't you, you you're not you don't think there's a bright future then for the pure play uh, populist uh, titles. I mean, you, you said there's been a an uplifting uh, flight and the quality titles are doing well, which I'm sure I don't know if that's universally the case. I mean, the Wall Street Journal didn't they close their European print edition, didn't they? But I think that's probably against the trend. I think more broadly they are doing quite well, but maybe the likes of of BuzzFeed and um, Huffington Post and people like that have got a more a, a tricky future, have they? Well, I think. The popularity stakes are hard to win, right? You know, um, it's much... You, you can become popular overnight, right? Mm-hmm. But you can also... It's, it's hard to retain popularity. I think the sort of lifespan of popular is a lot shorter than it was. And I think you've seen that with, um, you know, some of the well-documented, yeah. you know, challenges around, say, Vox or BuzzFeed. Now, BuzzFeed yeah. started as Cats on Skateboards, and, but has a brilliant, brilliant news offering yeah, does, in the yeah. UK. It's really re- very, very good. Um, but, you know, the, the challenge there is can the free-to-market-ad-only mm. model support um, mm. these news brands? I'm not sure by itself it can. Mm. I mean, Vice has done a very good job of, you know, creating formats and franchises outside of the ad model. Mm. But I think you have to build a brand and build a brand that can exist in many formats in order to monetize something that's popular. Yeah, I mean, I think it, quite simply, BuzzFeed is good for the simple reason that they write good stories, don't they? Interesting stories. I mean, it's as simple as that, I would have thought. Anyway, aside from newspapers, now that you're here, on this podcast, we have talked a lot about the, the Me, Too movement, uh, Me Too movement, obviously global movement against sexual harassment and, and sexual uh, assault, um, which was kind of a, a big topic. We talked about this a lot last year. Um, so, I mean, have you ever encountered sexual harassment, bullying or harassment in any of your workplaces in your career, Katie? Yes. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's been something that 
would have happened many years ago and I called it out at the time Um, and I think we're hearing many stories now of people um, who didn't call it out Mm. at the time and um, you know those are stories that need to be heard but I do think the behaviours today are different to when I joined the industry I mean uh, can we still improve Mm. um, on diversity and representation and, and all absolutely um, but the culture of the news organisations that I have worked in mm. for the last 20-odd years dramatically different today than they were 20 years ago. Uh, not to dwell on too much, well, what was this sexual harassment? Was it, was it bullying? And you said he called it out. I mean, did, you, did this person leave or was it, was it just sort of dealt with quickly internally, was it? Or? Yeah, dealt with. Right. Called it out either to the individual to their yeah. face um, okay. and in some instances I took it into the right channels within the companies I work for but um, I've mm. never been scared of uh, calling it out as I see it no I can imagine that's the case and in terms of sex, sexism <laughs> and you, you, you think it's completely ironed out now or is there still examples where it occurs do you think or it's just less of an issue then today is it I think that it still exists um, but I but the culture is moving in the right way to, to encourage people to feel more confident and to support them, you know, when, you know, if incidents like this happen. Um, but it is, the culture's changed dramatically um, mm. in 20 years. I mean, both in terms of, you know, the makeup of the rooms, they are more diverse. We still have a huge amount to do. Um, but as, as, as the is the nature of the room and the makeup of the room changes, the culture also changes with it. Thanks very much for listening and uh, do listen next week.